Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. I am joined by my co-host, the one and only Kayvon Mangori. Welcome, Kayvon. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be here. So this was a little bit of a brainchild of yours, not the podcast per se, but the idea that we have a little bit more structured protocol as it relates to what we talk about and maybe stepping up our podcast game by getting some better equipment. So thank you because now the people that are listening have a much better experience. And they get to hear my raspy voice. So that's always a plus. Yes. And we are doing this podcast from two different locations because we are still under a very strict stay-at-home policy that uh, disables us from being in the same room with each other right now. So Kayvon's at his house, I'm at my house, and we're going to give it a go and see how this one turns out. So Kayvon, without further ado, uh, the new format for the Legal Beagle podcast is we have five umbrella topics that we cover, current events, ask me anything, where we ask our listeners to ask us random legal questions, and then we respond. We have a customer service section. We have a legal musings section, which is about funny, interesting, and odd things that have some sort of legal component to them. And then we have charitable doings. So let's jump in with current events. It's it's probably not going to surprise you, Kayvon, but we're going to talk a lot about the coronavirus because that's really what is going on in society right now. And this first story has to do with the NFL. The NFL has, well, I should say the teams in the NFL have had to modify their contracts with their players because typically when they sign a new player, there is a physical that's done and they make sure the player is fit to play on the team. Well, that can't happen right now because players are sometimes stuck in their own homes. They can't leave. There's travel restrictions, and it's just not generally safe to do that. So they're now putting clauses in these contracts that say you're going to have to get a physical after the restrictions are lifted, and if you don't pass, you're going to lose your signing bonus. What do you think about that? Well... I know the NFL had just, I think they just signed a new collective bargaining agreement um, with the players union, uh, or maybe that was the NBA. Anyway, um, I think that, you know, that's just another uncertainty that's thrown into the mix for anyone who, um, you know, makes their money in, in the sports and entertainment business. Um, I, probably the last thing that the players uh, need right now. Um, I'm sure, you know, a a good portion of them are financially secure. Um, but there's also a great deal of them that, that aren't. And, um, I don't know where these people turn if they, um, do, you know, some of these guys do lose their signing bonuses, right. They're expected to, you know, have rather short playing careers. It's a pretty, uh, physically challenging game. Um, this money is supposed to last them a, a lifetime. And so someone losing their signing bonus, you know, might not seem like a lot to, to, to us because these guys make a lot of money. Um, but if you understand that a lot of these guys, that's, that's the money that they're going to be making for their family to last them a lifetime. Um, this could have some really drastic uh, consequences. And, and I could also see if it's a, on a team to team basis, 
um, perhaps some teams um, trying to take a competitive advantage and um, and saying that you know they're not going to do that. Maybe they they uh, drive some some more players in their direction just by uh, showing them that they care a little bit more. According to this article in, or I guess on ESPN.com, this is interesting, and I wanted to get get your thoughts on this. It says that if a player signs a three-year, $30 million contract with a $10 million signing bonus, but fails the physical, so let's now fast forward to June, July, August, when things get back to normal and travel restrictions are lifted. If that player were to fail the physical, he would lose $10 million, that signing bonus, but still be bound to the three-year contract, but only receive $20 million. It's pretty rough. Um, <laughs> the teams, you know, by and large, probably get out of paying a lot of the um, staff that works at these stadiums if the if this is delayed any longer and it affects the actual uh, beginning of the NFL season, which they just, you know, voted to extend that in the playoffs. Um, so it's, I would say it's rough, right? And, and I think... <laughs> NFL players are probably not the people that we think of first when we think of em- employees, workers uh, getting the short end of the stick or, or not having uh, as much bargaining power. But here's a, a pretty good example of that. It's it, This is high stakes uh, stuff. And if the season gets pushed later, uh, I don't know if these, I mean, I, I, I suppose the teams are, are their concerns are, are valid. Uh, but this might not be the best way to approach that that issue. If you fail a physical with this virus, or, or for some other reason, it's not clear if it's specific to the, the coronavirus or something else. But if, if you fail it and you don't have, you know, really lasting symptoms, I mean, what is the, the real uh, effect on the game? What is the real effect to what that uh, team is was was going to pay for you to do? Probably, probably is not going to affect it that much. So I, I don't really see justice being done here. Most NFL players do have you know agents representing them, and, and a good deal of those agents are attorneys. So these these are folks who have a pretty good understanding uh, of contract law, but like most businesses across the board right now, no one has a great grasp on how this is going to uh, affect everything. We're hearing people uh, who would purchase all kinds of business interruption insurance now hearing that uh, they don't have that coverage or, or they thought that they did when they, they never actually did. So it's, it is somewhat uncertain times. And even for those in, in, in contract law where things are, are supposed to be written out uh, in pretty, pretty lengthy uh, verbiage. So these these contracts might, in the future, because th- this thing is expected to to possibly repeat itself, although not as severely, uh, in a, in a year or six months, they might be adding addendums to these contracts uh, specifically for the virus. I don't know. It's it's crazy times. That's for sure. Well, okay. So let, let's, you're an attorney and, and I know that contract law is not your specialty. However, it's something you deal with on a, on a daily basis. You're always reviewing agreements on behalf of the clients that you represent. Let's say 
you represent an NFL player. And let's use that hype, that scenario that's in this ESPN article. Your player says to you, look, they're offering $30 million if I sign a three-year deal, but $10 million is guaranteed as a signing bonus if I pass the physical. But if I don't, then I have to still play for three years for $20 million. Do you advise your client to sign that contract? Well, there's there's not a lot of other options, right? The NFL is is obviously there's the XFL and, and some other football leagues, but if if you have the talent to play in the NFL, that's you know that's an amazing thing. But you have to face reality, which is there is no other league where you're going to make any kind of living like this, right? There, there's no replacement. And so if you're, if you're a free agent, you can certainly uh, ask for other deals on the table from other teams, uh, entertain those offers and balance those, maybe even ask specifically for a team uh, to, to not have that, that clause in there. So it should be used as a, as a bargaining tool, if anything, right. to, say, okay, uh, I am not okay with signing that, right? But uh, I'd be happy to reduce the signing bonus. Um, so you're really pricing in risk here. So maybe it's an $8 million uh, bonus instead of 10, but you're not going to lose it for the mere fact of uh, the physical due to this coronavirus situation. So any any contract, it's going to attempt to really cover most all situations, but there's no way that you, you possibly could. Uh, and so there's there's a little bit of ambiguity here. I'd be interested to see what the actual clauses say uh, and whether they're even you know ultimately enforceable. There are issues with with contracts that what we call is are uh, unconscionable, and it's possible that. Uh, those could come into play here. It's it's a somewhat weak argument, but um, it is you know it does exist in in the law and in all fifty states. So this this overlaps a few different issues. Uh, I think overall, if you see a bunch of players um, really lose out on this, it might not actually matter because we've seen uh, player strikes in, in pretty much every sport, every major sport. Uh, in this country, and so if if, if the bargaining power shifts uh, too far in either direction, and I don't know what the the uh, collective bargaining agreement says uh, on that topic, uh, but I would say that you know the players can play if they want to play. Without the players, there is no sport. They're the best players out there. It's not like there's a competing league that's got equally uh, talented players, and so. You know, it's a, you've got a situation where the only players that should really be playing uh, are are signed with the NFL, and th there's no other league. So for for both sides here, right, it might go beyond just the basic contract law, but really just market uh, forces, right? If if enough players uh, put a stand up against this, that that might make the difference, regardless of what the contract says. Uh, if enough teams are doing it, um, it might become a thing. So I think it's really going to matter, you know, whether this is a, a minority or a majority thing that happens on, on either side. And, uh, you know, a year from now, it might be a regularly accepted thing. 
Uh, but right now, it's, it, it would be hard to predict. And if anyone were my client and I'd be talking about this, that's what I would tell them. Um, try to get the best deal that you can. But I think uh, you want to be in a position where you uh, maybe shore up some of that risk and, and take a little bit of a pay cut and that bonus. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think there's there's arguments on both sides of this because as a team owner, I don't want to leverage $30 million on a guy who is going to fail a physical. And and so I understand that side of it. What I, I guess what is a little bit odd to me is the idea that the player would still be bound to the agreement for less money. Meaning I could see there being no agreement and saying you failed the physical. It's based on, that's a material term of the, the contract is that you pass the physical. And if you don't, then we either go back to the negotiating table or off you go, you can try to play somewhere else. But to, to bind a player to the original contract, but pay them $10 million less seems uh, certainly in favor of, of the owners and not so much in favor of the players. So it's an interesting dynamic that I think you're right. We're seeing more and more interesting type things find their way into agreements or maybe even disagreements over contracts, which leads us into the next story, which is based in your your uh, home state of New York. There is a gym called the New York Sports Club that was sued by 600,000 members. That is a lot of members at a gym for what they claim, the members claim to be defrauding the members by not freezing payments or making it impossible to cancel their memberships because those clubs have closed down due to the coronavirus. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't currently have a gym membership, so I can't relate to that particular situation as far as gyms go. But I'll say this. I do have a, I'll call it a barber shop where I was going, which was subscription-based. And... I was waiting for them to send out an email because I didn't really know what the situation was. And they did, I think a week or two ago saying, if you want to cancel, go ahead and cancel. If not, you know, you can keep it going and we're going to share that money with the people who were, uh, you know, the employees because they're obviously out of work during this time, which I thought was great. And you know, if, if they're putting that money toward some kind of good cause, I feel <laughs> less bad about it. But uh, overall, uh, I think that uh, the patrons of this sports club uh, definitely ought to get their money back. Uh, and even if there's, you know, an agreement, every time you join a gym, there's some kind of agreement to, to auto pay and you have to give them, you know, 30 days notice or whatever's in the contract. Uh, to cancel it. And they always get people, you know, an extra month out of people uh, for that. But when it's widespread like this and the actual place doesn't really exist, it's not open by law, they, they got to give that money back. Um, you're just not, you're not getting any, anything in return. We, contracts, we call consideration, right? You've got to have a, a, we'll call it a quid pro quo. You got to get something uh, for your money. And these people aren't getting uh, anything for their money. So I expect that uh, justice will be uh, done here. I don't know if these people will get their full refunds. They might have to pay whoever the, the class action attorney is uh, that's suing on this, which I imagine is how it's being done. But, you know, this is not a, a fair situation. The gym should be taking 
uh, all the risk here, not the people who are, are paying customers who, who can't even come in. Um, the gym, I'm sure, has some kind of insurance to cover this. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they don't, like we said with uh, some of this other stuff, but uh, it should not be with the paying customer. If you're shut down, people shouldn't be paying you. Does it change your opinion if there is a force majeure? I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's a French word, I think. Uh, a clause in the contract that says that the gym escapes responsibility because of an unforeseeable circumstance. So like similar to an act of God type provision in a contract for our listeners that don't know what that is, that's, there are sometimes you'll find provisions in contracts that basically say if natural disasters happen, it excuses one party of the contract, a force majeure type of situation is where, uh, it's a human initiated action that can't be predicted or controlled, which is exactly what's happening here. So the state of New York shuts down these non-essential businesses like the New York sports club and the New York sports club is saying, well, we can't, we can't be open for business. We shouldn't be on the hook for all of our normal operating costs because of something that was out of our control. Does that change your opinion at all? If that, if there's language in their contract, similar to that. Not really. This is a, a contract with everyday consumers. If it were a business to business where you might have counsel on both sides or something like that, um, then, you know, I would expect that, uh, we've got two sophisticated parties, uh, but these are everyday people. Um, and the, I just looked at the article, the law firm that's representing them, uh, they are definitely big time heavy hitters. I've seen this name, uh, many, many places, many, uh, large class action type lawsuits. A lot of the, the me too movement type cases, uh, were also being handled by them. So I expect a very aggressive, um, approach here. And, uh, if they don't pay, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be going on for a while. And, um, this New York sports clubs is going to have to be not only paying a lot of money to these, these folks, um, but also their, their counsel. So, uh, New York sports clubs, you probably are going to need to, um, do the right thing here and, uh, refund the money. <laughs> Heed Kayvon's advice, get out while you can. So, as the world has changed drastically since the pandemic of the coronavirus, more people than ever are working from home. Now, for those that do not follow our firm closely enough to know that that's our normal operating procedure is to work from home. Everyone works from home. You work from home. I work from home. All the staff works from home. And we do have offices in the three cities where we do our primary business, one in Phoenix, one in San Diego, and one in Denver. But those are for client meetings. And typically, no one is staffing those outside of third parties on a daily basis. This landscape has changed everything. And more people, including my wife now, uh, are working from home because of these restrictions that are in place and these social distancing type uh, guidelines that are being mandated or at least encouraged by the government. My question to you is, because you have worked from home for quite some time, and maybe this isn't an adjustment for you, 
how would you counsel someone on adjusting to that new normal, the idea of working from home? Uh, anyone or what's that? Who are we yeah. talking about? Anyone. Let's say anyone from corporate America. Let's not say a server who primarily makes their living going to a restaurant. That's a whole different discussion. I'm saying someone that would normally go to an office every day that is no longer able to do that. Sure. So I have plenty of friends who are normally typically office bound. And um, I would say that a lot of their employers and managers are, are struggling to make that transition. One article I saw circulated talked about dressing up like you would dress up you were going to the office, which I think is just absolutely bonkers. <laughs> um, no, don't do that. Be comfortable, you know. Um, I mean, try to, you know, maintain some of your uh, workplace normalcy. But I think what's important is finding your right space in your home. Some people have a space uh, for an office. I do. I've always had that. Always just had a spare bedroom to do that in, which is great. Um, but you, you want to have somewhere where you're, you're consistently um, working. I, I think it's just like working in an office. You have to be uh, kind of comfortable and you're not going to find that immediately. It might take some time if you don't have a, a spare bedroom, uh, but, but try to test a few things out and, and figure out what works for you. I think it's also important to try again, I'm, I'm maybe I'm contradicting some, what I said before, but I think, you know, trying to have your meal time, those sorts of things around the same time that you were before uh, is also a good idea. But the, the most important thing I think is I don't think you can over communicate with your team uh, when you're working remotely. Tone just doesn't come across always in emails unless you've been doing that together for a while. Scheduling things on the calendar, even if it's not time that you're blocking off to be away from people, but just letting people kind of know uh, your schedule in some way, shape or form. Um, might allow you to get into that normal sort of routine. I think there's also some things to be said, not just about working remotely, but working remotely during this particular time. Um, obviously, we've been working remotely for a while, as Jonathan said, but we've never had to do it during this coronavirus chaos. And when you have that layer of it, you have to understand that it's probably going to take, whether it's the people that you work with or vendors or whomever, right? You're going to have to give people a little bit of slack here uh, to get things done that, that you might not have given them before. Um, so it's helpful to, you know, allow for things to move a little bit slower that's going to help everyone across the board. But in terms of just working in, in your own space, really try, try out some different spots. Look for you know, what works. If you, if you have a desk, great. If you don't, it's no big deal. But you want to make sure that you're trying to at least be consistent day in, day out with that. Uh, I found that early on when I was working from home, when I didn't have like a set space, 
it, it didn't, it, it just, it, if I found it hard to really uh, get into a groove. And that's when I, I think that's about the time when I bought uh, a desk and the desk, I don't work at it all the time, but just having it there as a place to put things. I mean, it seems rather straightforward, but I think it helps. I heard that, tell, correct me if I'm wrong, You so let me say this. You have two cell phones. You have your personal cell phone and you have your work cell phone. I heard that you typically do not look at your work, your personal cell phone during work hours. Is that true? Sometimes it's dead. So. <laughs> <laughs> I only got one charger. No, I have more than one charger. But I really try to avoid looking at my phone except for at, you know, a, a lunchtime or something like that. When I'm moving from my outside of my workspace, I'll, I'll typically take a look just to see what's up. I, I've got a lot of people that are on different time zones. And so sometimes they that's the only time that, that I'll be able to, to have a, a text or whatever with them. But for the most part, yes, I think one phone is just that's more than enough for me, uh, especially if I've got a laptop or a desktop in front of me as well. There's just too many distractions. Um, and you probably have all these distractions in, in the, the workplace at a, at a true office as well. But I think you have much, much more at your disposal uh, at home. And so you do need to try to, I think, um, compartmentalize some things, whether it's the space or time. Um, to, to better serve yourself. On the flip side, I really try to have, you know, once it's off work hours, I don't like to have my work phone on me. So, you know, I'd really try to keep it limited to one phone at a time. Do I ever have uh, two phones on me or in front of me? Yeah, I mean, occasionally, but, um, you know, that's just, it's a lot of stuff taking up your pocket space. So, Do you think that does a... Uh a good job of separating the two, the two things, because for people that work from home all the time, as opposed to people that are just new to this and trying to figure out how to set it up and how to be as productive as possible, there's this counter argument that you're always working because your, your workspace is always there. Do you find that by having a workspace, by having two different phones, by having some of these things that you can either turn off or turn on, you're able to separate your personal space from your workspace? I am, and it's something that has taken some deliberate sort of measures. I don't think I have like a set time where I say no more. Um, it also depends on what you do for a living. There's just some some types of jobs where that's you know it, less realistic that you're going to have a, a, a pretty good division between those two it's healthy to have a, a, a division of some kind i think it's better to have just a, a mindset that you need to uh, make time for both there are some jobs where if you don't do that you are going to really run your especially right now where everyone's spending a lot of time inside that can really have a negative effect on just your ability to be effective at some point, right? You're just going to be putting in too many hours that those hours are not actually all that effective. You're just, you know, you're just doing busy work as I, I'd like to call it, but probably not your, your best work. So I think it's, it's good to recognize that within the, the type of job that you have and in, in 
the limitations um, that you might have in working at home, that there's there it should be similar to what you had in, in the office environment. But I think everyone already was getting emails while they were at home. It's just a question of whether they were actually looking at those when they were still showing up at the office every day. So, you know, if you're one of those people that was already answering the, the late night email um, when you weren't working at the office, you're probably the type of person that needs to be deliberate about setting some boundaries here because that can really uh, encroach on, on everything now that you're, you're working from home and you're not leaving the house all that much um, anyway. I agree. And I think that one thing to remember if you're new to this Give yourself a little bit of leeway in getting adjusted. Be patient with yourself. Don't be frustrated that it's all not as comfortable as it was if you went to the office every day. My wife is an example. She's kind of moved around the house trying to find a a workspace, as you said. She's continuing to communicate with her team. They even arranged a virtual happy hour last week that we're going to do this week because I thought it was such a cool idea to see everyone's face and stay connected to try to have some normalcy in a very not normal environment. And so I think you're right in the things that you're suggesting. And and the only thing I would add is just be a little bit patient and, and give yourself a little bit of, of a break as you try to get adjusted, because it's not going to be as easy as a, uh, of a transition as you, uh, you think it may be. Ask me anything. I, I want to get a cool sound effect. Like there's got to be a cool sound effect that we can come up with that we play when we get to this this section of the podcast. Ask me anything. This is the section where you, the listeners, can email us and ask us anything and Kayvon and I will respond. This question, I parked on the sidelines and waited until you and I could connect on our first podcast because it's it's a subject that is just so you're so passionate about. So Kayvon, the question is, are electric scooters safe? I think that in order to answer that question, we need to remove electric from the question and ask if (laughs) scooters in general are safe. I grew up with, I want to say at least the second, maybe it was the third wave of the scooter craze. I, I remember it vividly. And I also remember a lot of people having some crazy injuries, knocked out teeth, all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, it's, I guess you could call that was a, at that time it was, it advanced to an extreme sort of sport. So I had already been a little leery of scooters and then they added the ability to, I don't know, go five, 10, 15 miles per hour on these things, um, which again, Again, most people have trouble riding them when they're going, you know, not even five miles per hour. Placing them outside of uh, bars, um, entertainment type districts, uh, not really, you know, having a whole lot of oversight on that. Um, I think they're, I'll just say it, I think they're dangerous. Um, There have been so many articles just about how these these scooter companies moved into these cities they didn't really ask for permission they just showed up now they're starting to be regulated a little bit more they've got some deals with uh, the various municipalities but there's still some municipalities where they're they're banned entirely 
Um, and that, that should be, you know, all you need to know, right, is that they're, they're looking out for these folks. And it's not just the people riding them, right? It's the people uh, who are around them. Um, so straight up, I just think they're dangerous. I don't think they really have a place. Um, I, I think it's okay for you to ride bikes around. What happened to bikes? Um, so I, I just don't think people really have a, a good um, grasp of how they're, they're supposed to do this. They showed up. Um, it, it wasn't done in a, a very, um, I will say, uh, measured way. And I, I still think it's that case, uh, except it's, it has the appearance of being a little bit more legitimate now. Have you ever ridden these scooters? Nope, I will not. Um, I was making the joke that uh, if I was at a bachelor party with my friends, uh, you know, I'd be happy to be left behind as they hopped on their scooters and I'll, you know, I'll find another way to get uh, from A to B. But I think that's, uh, I've, I've heard probably, I want to say between five and 10 stories, not from people calling us or clients or anything like that, but just friends and family telling me about people they knew who had some pretty horrific um, kinds of injuries on these things and under similar circumstances, you know, um, how could you expect someone not to jump on that, right? If the rest of their crew is heading down the block to the next bar. It's interesting that you bring up that example because we just had a client hire us where her husband was in LA on one of these scooters at a bachelor party, tragically fell off the scooter and uh, died because of his injuries. And it's exactly the example you're using. And the argument, or at least the theory that uh, we're pursuing is, is uh, lack of, or I guess it's a, in the product liability world, it's failure to warn, right? Lack of you know, proper education as it relates to these, these scooters, they, the app itself, if, if you're listening to this and you've been on the scooters and you know what, what I'm talking about in order to unlock and ride one of these scooters, whether it's bird, lime, spin, jump, who, whatever company you have to download their app and you have to consent to all of this stuff that you, you probably don't read and, and don't, really care about until something tragic happens. And when you do that, you get a quick little tutorial on the app about how to ride this thing. And, and to your point, Kayvon, you're right. No one can appreciate what it feels like to go 15 miles an hour on this thing until you're on it. I, I have ridden them. I rode them in Denver and I'm glad I wrote it at least once. I don't think it's something I'll probably write again because I, I do think they're inherently dangerous, but I wanted to experience it to understand it. And when I wrote it in Denver, it was in an area where they actually geofence off a certain downtown district where you can't, you can't ride the scooter. So I'm flying along at 15 miles an hour. And then I hit this invisible wall and the scooter just dies. And I actually kind of ran off it a little bit. I was able to catch myself and I'm fairly sure-footed. So I was able to do that. I couldn't imagine if someone wasn't paying attention, if they were, God forbid, inebriated or uh, just maybe not as sure-footed as I was, was how, how that could turn into a really bad uh, situation. But there is this, this really, there. I guess it's a big disconnect is the way I see it between the consumer and these companies that have popped up all over the country because they... They dump these in markets, highly 
populated areas that, like you said, are more entertainment areas where there's a lot of bars and restaurants. And it's it's all but encouraged to ride these in situations where you probably shouldn't be riding them, not just dealing with alcohol. It could be at night where they don't have adequate lighting. It could be in areas that are just not necessarily equipped to handle scooters and these little wheels that are on the scooters could easily get caught in, in um, the the curbs or the the sidewalks that you're riding on. There's a host of different things that could cause uh, someone to fall off these and get injured without them ever coming in contact with anyone else or anything else. And that's what's I think a little frightening to me is the the amount of injuries that people are experiencing on these scooters when they don't get, they're not getting hit by anyone else. They're not running into someone else. Someone else is not running into them. It's literally a malfunction of the scooter itself or just lack of appreciation for the sheer power that these scooters have. Yeah. And, and how are you going to expect someone to read that? I don't know, 10, maybe 15 pages if we printed it out um, guidelines or user agreement, whatever you want to call it. Right. While the rest of that crew or whoever, right. Uh, wherever they need to go is time's a wasting, right. People are taking that for convenience. Um, they just, they don't really have time for that. Right. So it's, it's not practical, um, to expect someone to, uh, to read that. Of course, they're going to point to, to that the language in that as, um, as a defense of some kind, but, it's unrealistic. Um, furthermore, I would say that the the number of injuries, right? It's it's concerning, but what's more concerning is the type of injuries. No one's having a minor injury on one of these falls. These are absolutely horrific injuries. Um, every single call that we get, someone's got some kind of broken bone more more than likely a permanent type of, of injury that's going to affect them the rest of their life. Um, you know, if we're going to put these warnings on, on, on cigarettes, which one cigarette's not going to do that kind of harm to someone over time, it could certainly. Um, but if, if you could have uh, a, a video or something play on these things showing uh, some of the injuries that people have rather than just, you know, some fine print, uh, I think a lot fewer people ride them. Uh, and I, I remember an article that I sent you, I want to say maybe it was a year ago, uh, Arizona central, the Arizona Republic, uh, published a story talking about the number of cases that happened, uh, in, in Tempe, uh, which is where Arizona state university is. So there's a lot of, um, people riding scooters and the, one of the, it was either the one of the ER departments or, or somewhere there was a picture of uh, a piece of paper somewhere and it said number of days that uh, they have gone uh, with without uh, a, a scooter injury coming in and it was zero and they said it was zero for like a hundred days straight so I mean think about how many people right in a in a year probably have some horrific injuries on these. I mean, some, something's got to change. Right. And, and so I don't know exactly what, but these injuries are, are, are pretty horrific. And it's pretty clear that these, these scooters are uh, pretty dangerous. Well, I spoke on a panel, a national panel with uh, 
a representative from Lime, one of the big scooter companies, and we were talking specifically about the city of Tempe. And he said that they, as a business, pulled out of Tempe because of the strict regulations that the city placed on these scooter companies. It, it took a while for them to catch up to the number of scooters that were that were on their city streets, but they put such strict regulations in place that a company the size of Lime just said, we're no longer going to do business in Tempe. They've since pulled out of Arizona, which I think has more to do with some financial difficulties they're having as a, as a company. But I think you're right. I think there needs to be, uh, look, I'm not, I'm not someone who says that we, we shouldn't have things like scooters for, for people to ride. Uh, I don't know that they're, they're so dangerous that if not, you know, if, if you're told how to ride them and, and educated how to ride them and, and taught how to ride them, could you ride them, you know, in a, in a safe way? And should you be wearing a helmet? Absolutely. And, and could you be more equipped to uh, be agile when, when the time comes for you to be agile? Yeah, probably. I, I think, I think the problem is they're sticking these scooters out there and, and saying good luck and they're just giving people free reign to ride them. It's, it would be like it, you have to have a motorcycle license to ride a motorcycle, <laughs> yeah. right? You do. I, I don't know how to ride a motorcycle. It would be very dangerous for me to just go jump on a motorcycle right now and go tearing down the street. I could probably figure it out, but I'd most likely wipe out. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. We're giving someone a motorized vehicle to use the electric scooter example and saying good luck and and with very little oversight or uh, any, any sort of education on how to uh, how to properly uh, navigate these things and and ride these things and i think that's that's the big issue right now is just that you know you have these these companies that had a lot of money funding them sticking these in cities all across the country and now i think the cities are starting to push back and starting to require a little bit more and and there's now larger or maybe more productive conversations happening uh, about the safety of, of these scooters in general. Scottsdale just got done with a year long study where they accepted a lot of public comment and really tried to understand whether these were good for the city and whether they, they should allow these and what kind of regulations should be put in place. And I think that's going to continue to happen as uh, there's more and more of these scooters that are uh, being deployed uh, out in the market. So the next topic customer service. Now, customer service is a very big topic. It's it's big in the sense that it could go a lot of different directions. So in order to focus us a little bit this week, I wanted to talk about an article I found that, that discussed the 16 most important customer service skills. And I just wanted to pick out a couple of these and just ask your opinion on whether you think these should be in the top 16 there's only 16, so that's that's the uh, the list. And whether you think they should be where they fall in order, because I imagine they're ranked from uh, from the the most important customer service skill to the least important in this list of 16. So let's start with number one. They're number one on this list uh, from an article on HelpScout.com. The number one skill for customer service is patience. Do you agree with that, Kayvon, or do you disagree? Is it the number one overall? I know it's important. Uh, I don't know if I could really rank them like that. It's very difficult. 
but it is definitely, I would put it in a, a top five, and it might be said by some other attributes. When I think of, of being patient, I would say it's important to understand that, especially in our business, most of the most of the folks that we're talking to, this is their, their first go around. And even if it's not, right, they might not have been adequately, I don't want to say represented, but um, things weren't adequately explained to them. And I think that's so important. I'm always trying to educate people because the more I can have them, they don't have to speak my language, but they have to at least kind of understand some of the things that we're doing for them so that they can play a role um, in, in being, you know, a, a, a team player in, in their own case. It's going to take time for you to realize and for, for them to realize what that language needs to be. Sometimes you need to explain things three different ways. Um, sometimes, you know, you need to take your, your normal language and even elevate it up to some folks, right? So we've got people calling us. They, they come from all shapes and sizes, all walks of life, and no two are alike. We don't ever want to assume that they know something, but also at the same time, we don't want to, um, you know, um, approach things in, in any kind of way that uh, assumes that they're, they're not uh, of a certain, you know, understanding or, or intelligence, right? Um, so it's important to really fit that mold for them. Uh, and over time, you're, you're going to have established how you need to explain things to that particular person. Now, in other businesses or industries, they might not have as long-term a relationship with that customer or in the, the way that we do. And so there might be a, a different approach and, and patients might not um, look the same way, but it's still important. I mean, if you're working in, in the restaurant business, which is obviously not a, a great spot right now, but Prior to this, patience is definitely key, right? Um, people, you know, if someone's coming into your restaurant and, and wants to order some things, um, obviously you want them, to, you want things to move along at a certain pace because um, you know you're not you're not there to to have them uh, in there for three hours. You're trying to have them in there, you know, hour, hour and a half, something like that at most, and that might not be every every you know couple that's in there, every group that's in there. So you, you do have to have patience in, in that regard, just raw patience, but also you have to have patience to kind of just you know put up with some differences that that you have with uh, people contacting you, um, how people uh, approach things, uh, how people order things. It's always important. Um, it might be known by some other words, but but I think yeah, patience is. Um, I'll give it a top 10. I don't, I don't know if it's number one though. <laughs> All right. Number six is acting skills. Let me, let me explain what the article says. It says every great customer service professional needs basic acting skills to maintain their usual cherry personal personality in spite of dealing with people who are just plain grumpy. I read that to mean that you have to be fake sometimes. Is that, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you interpret that? Yeah, and I also don't like that. I mean, again, it, 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 I would say it depends on, on the business, and I don't know who the person is who put this together. Um, but 
with our clients or with them for a long time. Uh, and not every client or not every person who calls us needs to be a client, or nor should they. Uh, we're looking for a, a, a good fit for us and a good fit for them. We want it to be a, a successful relationship. And we've had people call us where it's, it's pretty apparent that um, it's just, you know, it's not going to work. Um, we try to give that opportunity, that chance, but, um, you know, we've had an, uh, enough situations to know um, what we think we can, can do to prove on and provide a benefit to people versus uh, times that where it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think it's important to be upfront with people from the start, because if you're going to start with acting, then you're probably going to continue to do that. And in our business, um, you, you know, it, we really do have to tell the truth. We have a duty to the, the court system to, to do that. And so if we're not uh, creating that example from the outset, I mean, how, how can we really uh, do a good job for, for our clients? So I, I think it depends on, on the industry you're in. I mean, if you're, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I can't, I don't know. Maybe you can come up with one. Well, let me ask you a question about something you just said, because I, it's an interesting point. You said we have an obligation to tell the truth. Sometimes the truth is not fun to, to tell. It's not like it's always positive. How do you deliver bad news to your clients because you have this obligation to be truthful, meaning you have to deliver the news, but it's not good news? Well, I think you start with understanding that um, with what we do, right? Someone's hired us to to solve a problem, and, and and not all problems are solvable, right? And so it starts from day one in saying that we're going to absolutely do our, our our best for everyone, but know that we are not um, miracle workers, right? We don't perform magic. Um, if we did, we'd probably be magicians, not attorneys. So it's, it's important to really set that stage, give people realistic um, expectations so that um, if there is something that you're ultimately going to have to deliver to them, that that's bad news, that they're not so surprised. You never want to paint too rose, you know, a rosy picture uh, for people because chances are you're not going to be able to, to really ever deliver on that. So giving people realistic expectations, I think, prepares them for the possibility of things that um, might not be you know, what people classically call positive news. But sometimes what people in their own minds think is bad news just means that we might have to do something a different way or things might take a little bit longer. And that might be it. So I think it's important to deliver that and say, here's how we're going to address it rather than, you know, here's your, you know, here's your sentence. Like, that's it. Number nine. I just love this word. Unflappability. It means that you have the ability to keep your cool under pressure. Do you think that's a top 10 customer service skill? Hmm. I think you need to be human. And there are some situations where you should, I mean, you should always have some level of restraint for sure. At the same time, if you let people walk on you all day long, um, you know, how can you, <laughs> how can, you know, they're, if they're going to see you that way, then that's, that, that's, that's not, it's not going to work long term. Um, so it, 
that's a very, I would say, contextual type question. Um, there are some situations where I think you need to show um, your human side. I think it's important. Um, I think in our line of work, there are some specific uh, times when, when that is important. Um, but a lot of, you know, most, for the most part, it is important to, um, you know, maintain that, that full restraint. Um, but we work in a, in a business where it's, it's all about, um, really the human element in, in feeling and, um, you know, to say that you're unflappable, but also work in that space. I, I don't think that the two are, um, are entirely uh, can mutually exist together. You have to have some room to um, to show emotion, um, to cry even. I love that. I love the idea of just be human. And it's not on the list. It's not one of the 16. And I would argue it deserves to be on the list. I think a good skill in any customer service is be human because we are dealing with humans. The in, The very idea of customer service is that we're dealing with another human being. And so being human, and I love that you said it that way, is so very important to a successful customer service experience. And so I love the idea of be human. It's not on the list. I think that this author, whoever it is, I can't find their name, should should consider adding be human to the list of, of 16 customer service skills. Legal musings. Legal musings is my favorite category that we get to discuss each week. Legal musings are weird, funny, interesting, odd things I find with a legal component. And this is a story that has spread nationwide because it's happening all over. This particular story that we're going to discuss here, Kayvon, happened in New York where I didn't purposely find stories that had to do with your home state. But this one is a, there's an article that a New York judge released 122 inmates because of concerns over the spread of the coronavirus. And I think you said before we jumped in this podcast, you had some experience with this or you heard about this. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I was on a group chat with some friends and someone had, had posted about that. And I, I, as you know, I can't just like let things like that be. I have to, I have to check it out. Um, like a dog, I gotta go sniff at it. So, uh, so I looked it up, um, and yeah, this happened, this is happening across the country. The question is whether it's really, um, you know, gonna, gonna actually have any real, um, appreciated sort of effect. There's two ways to look at it, right? Uh, one is, are they, are they letting these, these folks out, right? To just have an overall reduction in the, um, jail, I, I would say it's all jails, not prisons, um, jail populations, uh, so that they can maybe spread people out a little bit more in there, something like that. Um, or is it all people who are, um, you know, such high risk that if they get, uh, sick from that, you know, in there that they're, it's, that they're pretty much going to, you know, they're going to die. Right. Um, you know, if you're going to jail for, three months, that's not a, you know, it's not a death sentence, but in this kind of day and age with this virus and people, you know, crowded and crammed together, that, that kind of is, but then it goes even farther. It's like, okay, so who, who, who do we let out? Who do we keep in? It's a very difficult question. Um, it sounds like there are some people that clearly need to go out. 
uh, and this might even start some conversations, I think, you know, after this all um, is over with, this entire virus situation, who we end up, uh, how we penalize people, right? And, and who we need to actually uh, put into jail. The people they're letting out, from, from what I understand, is mostly uh, very low-level uh, sort of offenses, nonviolent offenses, um, you know, probably mostly drug crimes, whether it's, you know, uh, trafficking or, or, or whatnot. What are these people going to do when, when, when they're out, right? I mean, I don't think they're going to really create any kind of uh, real havoc. There's some people that, that, you know, you might worry about. So where do you draw that line? It's, it's very difficult. Um, it's, it's a good thing. You know, I, I think it's a good um, approach. It, it probably needs to happen, but ultimately, right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if these um, uh, jails and, and, and judges and everything, they're looking at this from a liability standpoint and wondering, um, you know, if they don't release a certain number of people or something like that, that um, they're going to have some kind of, you know, constitutionally based class action lawsuit on their hands would not be surprised. Yeah, some civil rights type claim could certainly arise from this. But uh, there was a story here in Arizona. A couple of defense attorneys were interviewed on the news and they were filing emotion or emotional, excuse me, emergency petitions, emergency motions to have their clients who were being held without bail let out of jail pending trial so that they could be at home as opposed to being in jail. And and on the surface, that may sound okay, but you're talking about some pretty violent crimes that uh, had been committed. One was a, a second-degree murder charge. And the reason he was being held without bail is because he was a flight risk back to Mexico. And that concerns me a little bit, right? If you're talking about nonviolent offenders and you're talking about maybe the end of some sort of jail sentence or... Uh, incarceration period, maybe, or these lower level offenses, but you're talking about some, you know, felony cases that, that carry, you know, really, really severe sentences. If these people are found guilty, I would worry about that. I'd worry about the, the possibility that these people just, just take off if, if they're let out of jail uh, in, in order to prevent the spread of, of this disease, or uh, just to manage the number of people that are in the the jailhouses to to try to you know abide by some sort of social distancing or or you know try to keep people as as safe as possible. I'm not I'm not suggesting that you should lose all your human rights when you go to jail. That's not what I'm saying. But I think and I think you said it already. You have to look at these on a case by case basis. I I lo- I heard that story and I thought that was a pretty extreme example of of where someone should be released from jail. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if there's really enough time to do that case by case analysis. Um, you know, this many people, uh, but I think that is an extreme example. I doubt that's going to get uh, granted. It might just be more of a publicity move, um, which I think is a great publicity move. But uh, I, I don't see them letting anyone with with you know murder charges or who has has gone in for something of that nature um, being let out. Uh, so that might just be some outliers. Uh, who knows? I guess I guess we'll see, right? So 
The final category of this week's podcast is, and will always be the final category, charitable doings. This is about things that we either highlight as charitable initiatives that others are doing, uh, charitable initial initiatives that we're doing through the firm, or just things that we find uh, and, and can highlight as, as good things that are happening. Every, every quarter or so at Negretti & Associates, we have a different charity that we support. And what we do is we ask clients to donate a certain amount uh, and they can elect to do so. It's completely voluntary. And if they do donate something out of their settlement proceeds, then the firm matches that donation. This quarter's recipient is a an organization called CyberSmile. It's a, a national organization that works to reduce and prevent cyberbullying. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the idea of cyberbullying, because I think sometimes people equate cyberbullying to something that only happens to teenagers, that it happens through social media platforms. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I have my own thoughts, but I, I want to start with you. I think the majority of it is is among kids just because they don't know any better and teenagers have all kinds of you know hormones affecting how they behave. Um, but it, yeah, it does happen to adults. I've seen it. Um, had a friend tell me that he thinks his mom got cyber bullied uh, and you know that that kind of was interesting to hear I'd never heard that um, and so I kind of asked him about it and he said you know if there was a I don't know, it was a Facebook or something like that and um, there was just a, a lot of people ganging up on her um, and uh, I don't know if she like deleted her account or something like that but um, you know, she was, she was in tears. Um, I mean, if something like that, uh, and, and she's not someone who's is easily put into tears. I, I know, uh, this woman quite well, and, and she is a, a very, you know, tough person, I would say, and, and most people would say. So I think that, uh, if it brings someone to tears, it, that's probably crossing the line. Uh, but again, it's kind of a case by case thing. I see it locally on, uh, the next door app, a lot of people just um, not giving each other kind of the common decency. And, um, you know, I think it's a great app, but, um, you know, some things get out of control. So I, I don't know what to do about cyberbullying because I think that it's, it's more, um, I think it's a symptom of, of things in our society uh, more than it's its own sort of thing. Um, and people just use the online uh, forums a as an outlet where they, they couldn't do that uh, before. So we leave it up to, to people who are a little bit better, I guess, educated in that on how to approach that, that problem or symptom. But that, that's my own thoughts on that. Well, I'll tell you that I think that you can get bullied even as a business. And I'll, I'll give you an example that happened to us. There was a client we had who... Uh, was dissatisfied with the service we provided. And that's going to happen from time to time. And I am more than willing to hear someone explain uh, where maybe we fell short in their eyes and where we could have done better. And we can grow and improve as a business. I think client reviews are very important because if they're legitimate, 
you can learn from them. They don't all need to be five-star reviews. In fact, they shouldn't, or maybe they're not all legitimate because you're going to have experiences with people that are not always five-star experiences. We strive for that at the firm. We hope that is the outcome, but it's, it's not always what ends up happening. And this particular client uh, decided to start posting a lot of fake reviews, purposely trying to drive down our overall rating as a business. These reviews were baseless. If you read the content of the reviews, they made no sense. A lot of them were gibberish or they just didn't have any legitimacy to them. Google did a decent job of removing some of them after I you know, fought with them uh, and explained what was happening here. But I felt that was an example of being bullied through an online platform like our uh, review system because of a disagreement that this particular client had uh, with the services that we provided. And so I don't think it's, it's simply one person or a group of people attacking another person because I take that very personally, right? I want our business uh, to be known in the market uh, as a business that does good work and that, and it, you know, does, uh, has good outcomes for our clients and, and is a productive member of the community. And when we were targeted like that, it, it did become very personal. And it wasn't that it was all directed towards me as much as it was directed towards the firm and all the people uh, that we get to work with on a daily basis. So I, I think bullying in a cyber environment is interesting to me because I don't think people would do this without these platforms. Meaning I, I don't think people would come up to your face and say these things, not for lack of of fear of starting an altercation, but just because of human decency and, and you just wouldn't treat people that way, uh, at least to their face. And it surprises me that people are so willing to abandon that principle when they get behind a keyboard and they don't have the interaction of someone on the other side of it instantaneously, kind of either making a facial expression or reacting or responding to them. So we are very proud uh, as a firm to be supporting CyberSmile. If you're interested in CyberSmile, you can go to their website. It's cybersmile.org to learn more about them. Kayvon, that wraps up this week's episode of the Legal Beagle podcast. That's one in the books. What do you think? Uh, we're a little long on time, but uh, I think next time we'll be a little, little more on point with that. Um, and uh, it's nice to do it from the comfort of my home. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, at some point we will do this together, but for right now, for the foreseeable future, I will join you back here next week and we will, we will uh, record the next episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. Thanks uh, for your help and I will talk to you soon. Over and out.